0: Good morning, everybody. Uh, so we, like Pastor Brian said, we're starting a new series today on the life of Joseph, uh, but we have to do something first. I don't know if you guys remember the days before streaming services, uh, when you couldn't, watch binge, or you couldn't binge watch TV shows. What they would do is they would give you like a five-minute montage of like everything you needed to know before that happened before in, this, in the show. You know, the, the dramatic voice. It's like, previously on the book of Genesis. It, like, and it just kind of gives you like the boom, boom, boom. Like this is what you need to know before we get into the episode. That's what we need to do today. So we're going we're gonna to go through what is going on in the book of Genesis. Because Joseph's life is like season four, episode one. And we need to, like, we need to refresh our minds on what happened in the first three seasons of this story so that we can kind of grasp fully what we're doing. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to jump in. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity to encounter you through the reading of your word. God, I pray that we would receive it with open hands and open hearts. God, may our ears be attuned to your voice and would you speak to us. Uh, Lord, would you use me even to, to communicate your truth to us as a community? And if there's anything that I say this morning that is not from you, God, I pray that you would give everyone here spiritual amnesia uh, to just forget all about it by the time they walk out. Uh, but only what would remain is the truth that you have for each one of us. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we pick up in Genesis chapter. 12. We start with God speaking to a random guy. This is what it says in Genesis 12. It says, the Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. Now, that's so weird. Like, a random guy living in a random land hears a voice and says, leave your country, leave your people and your father's household and not like go to this country, just go to the land. I'll show you. I'll tell you when you get there. Trust me. Crazy. But then he takes it a step further and he he starts making promises. He says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. And then the most surprising words, to me anyways, so Abram left, as the Lord had told him. Now, Abram, later his name gets changed to Abraham. Maybe you know him by that name more uh, confidently. But he is sort of where this story begins. Abraham is Joseph's great-grandpa. And God shows up to him, and he makes these promises. Sometimes we call them the Abrahamic Covenant, can you say Abrahamic covenant? It is, it is impossible for me to overstate to you the importance of the Abrahamic covenant in understanding the Bible and understanding basically all of human history. Like, this, what God does here is he reveals, like, the beating heart behind his plan for, for the entire world. His covenant sort of includes three big. He says, I will give you many descendants. That's when he talks about having, giving them a nation, another place. He reiterates this one over and over again. Sometimes he says, I'll give you as many descendants as there are sand in the seashore or as many stars in the sky. I don't know why Jesus likes to use, or God likes to use tongue twisters, but he does. And and the, the second part is this promised land. I'm gonna give you a land where you're all this, this great nation can live in and it's gonna be flowing with milk and honey and it's gonna, like land in that time, is just it represents wealth. Like that's the primary way of generating wealth. And so not just am I gonna create you a big people, but I'm gonna create, I'm gonna create prosperity for you as a people. And the third big part of this covenant is that all the people on the earth are gonna be blessed through you. Everyone on earth will have a blessing because of you, Abraham. And these promises literally shape how history unfolds for thousands of years. These promises form like the backbone, the structure of the Old Testament, and maybe even the New Testament. You can make an argument for the, for the whole Bible of just how God is working and how these pieces fit together. If you don't grasp the Abraham, Abrahamic covenant, it's going to be hard for you to understand what is going on. Like when you get to books like Samuel and Kings, like the, it's, it's confusing to, to sort of see the overarching story, but it's God saying to Abraham, to some guy saying, I have a plan to bless the entire world and it's going to start with you. And Abraham is not a perfect guy, but whenever he gets referenced later on in scripture, he gets a lot of credit over and over again for believing that God would do what he said he would, for having faith that God would keep his promises. And Abraham learns over the course of his life that God's promises will be fulfilled through his second son named Isaac, which is a little bit uncommon because in that day it was always the first son who would inherit sort of the, the role of leadership and, and all of the Not all, but most of the the estate of the family. But God says, no, we're going to do this differently. It's going to go through your second son, through Isaac. And we get a lot less story with Isaac. We don't get to hear a lot about his life. But we do get to see that God is very clearly continuing to fulfill his promises through Isaac. This is what it says in chapter 26 of Genesis says, that night the Lord appeared to Isaac and said, I am the God of your father, Abraham. Do not be afraid for I am with you. I will bless you and I will increase the number of your descendants for the sake of my servant, Abraham. And and the, the descendants sort of become like the stand in, for, for God's entire covenant, the rest of the covenant, sort of in parentheses, when God says, "I'm going to give you descendants," He's also sort of saying, "And a land, and I'm going to bless people who bless you." I'm gonna cur-. He, He's saying like the whole covenant, Isaac, I'm going through you. It's going to come. Ha- it's going to come about. And Isaac has two sons, just like his father, and God speaks to his wife Rebecca that the younger son will be the child who inherits the promise. In the same way that Isaac was younger and he inherits the promise, Isaac's younger son, Jacob, continues on and inherits that promise. And Jacob is another guy who is very far from perfect. And as a matter of fact, his name sort of means like the trickster or the deceiver. And when we look at his life, which we do get a really good chunk of Genesis to read about, we see him like manipulating people to get what he wants. We see him kind of conniving and doing all of these, you know, like tactics to get, uh, to get the things that he's wanting in life. But, but God says, I'm gonna work through you. It's, God's not picking perfect people to bring about his promises. This is what he says to Jacob in reiterating his covenant promises. He says, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples of the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. Now, when Jacob receives this promise, he is childless and landless. Uh, God has provided for him materially. And, you know, I, we just mentioned, he does some manipulating and some, some conniving to produce wealth for himself. But by and large, we're le- as readers, we're left questioning, how is God gonna do this? How is God gonna create descendants as many as sand on the seashore with, with working with people who only have two kids? And that, that question of how is God going to keep his promise echoes through the entire Old Testament because it seems like every turn, the people sort of throw the promises into question. The people's actions, their behaviors, their attitudes, they sort of make it seem like God's promise is impossible to fulfill. But God is always reiterating his promise. He's always demonstrating, yeah, I'm going to do what I said I was going to do. And by the end of his life, Jacob has... 12 sons. And if you remember from last year, we talked about Jacob around this time of year. Jacob has like a WWE match with God, like in the middle of the night, and they're like wrestling. And by the end, God actually renames Jacob. Does anybody know what he renames him to? Israel. God says, your new name is Israel. And Jacob's 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. And so the, they're sort of like the first little sprinkling, the first grains of sand on the seashore that's, that's kind of just pointing us to the fact that God is going to keep his promise. And so that's what we need to keep in mind as we jump in to Joseph's story, which picks up in Genesis 37. So I would love for you to open up your Bibles, if you would, and join me uh, as we read Genesis 37. We're going to start... Uh, well, I have it on the slides. The slides start at verse two. It says, this is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born of him in his old age. And he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to rule over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. He said, I had another dream. This time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now his brothers had gone to graze their flocks near Shechem and Israel, that's Jacob, said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers... Are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I am going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. Now let's pause there for a second. I want to give you a little bit of context just so you can understand what's going on. Jacob and his family live in the valley of Hebron, which is sort of in the southern part of modern-day Israel. Shechem is about fifty miles north, few days of a journey to get there. So his brothers have been away for a little while. When Jacob finds out that they are at Shechem, He sends Joseph because there is some serious bad blood between Joseph's family, Jacob's children, and the Shechemites. We don't have time to get into all of that. If you want to read about it, it is in Genesis 34. Uh, But Jacob Jacob is worried that the Shechemites are going to do something bad to his son. So he sends Joseph. The reason Joseph is not with them is because of the coat that his dad gave him. Do you ever heard the, the coat of many colors? You guys know what I'm talking about? That's, that's sort of a misunderstanding of, of the kind of coat that Joseph had. It's more accurately just describes a coat with long sleeves. I don't know what the whole difference is there. I don't know all the details of that. But the point of the garment is that it's, it's, a, it's a leader's garment. It's a ruler's garment. When Jacob gives that to Joseph he is saying to him in effect, like, you are going to rule this family after me. And the long sleeves of the coat would be very impractical for him to try and like chase after sheep that are running away. So Jacob is, or Joseph is, is exempted from shepherding duties. That's why he's not out already with them. But J- Jacob sends him and so he goes and uh, th- we're gonna pick up in verse 19. We'll keep going. It's, they, they see him coming These are his brothers speaking. They say, here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns or like pits and say a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, they said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. I'm gonna pause there for a second. That's nice, right? Big bro, Reuben, trying to rescue his little brother. It's not nice. Like, Reuben is not being a good guy here. If we were to go back into Genesis chapter 35, Reuben did something uh, very dishonorable. He did something that would disgrace his father. We don't have time to get into all of that. But uh, suffice it to say that Reuben... Is, is not in his father's good graces. And he sees here an opportunity to maybe earn some favor with dad because he can rescue, he can rescue this, this, his favorite son that would have been left for dead to sort of earn his way back. So he's not acting out of pure intentions here. We keep, keep going. Uh, 23, so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come. Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? So we get a little picture. Okay. He he was really worried about himself. Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in blood. They took the ornamented robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, in mourning will I go down to the grave to my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. This is the opening episode of the life of Joseph. And as we'll see as we get into this series, every vignette, like every episode, every chapter of Joseph's life, it's striking when you string them all together because Joseph himself actually sort of does very little throughout his life. It's, it's, it's very clear when you read it through. Like if you were to read from 37 to the very end of Genesis in chapter 50, it would, it would sort of jump out of the page at you that basically everything is happening to Joseph. It's, it's other people's intentions, other people's wills that they're exerting on him. And very little, very few of the time, it's, it's actually him exerting his own will and intention. Now we called this series Intended for Good because of something that Joseph says, not in this chapter, but actually at the very end of the story. And this, this verse, we'll jump there in a second, is, it really sort of sheds light on everything that happens to Joseph. And, and really, we're able to start to see, how is Joseph processing all of this? How is Joseph feeling about all of this? And so i want to read that to you, and I think these will be verses that we'll come back to periodically as we go through this series. But this is what it says in Genesis 50, which is the very end of the book of Genesis, the end, the last chapter. Just to tee this up, just so you know, because we may not all be familiar. Joseph goes from being thrown into a pit. Lots of stuff happened. We'll cover it. He ends up being second in command over all of the kingdom of Egypt. So just behind Pharaoh, it's Joseph. And Joseph is, is in, has an incredible amount of influence and power. And In addition to that, God gave him a vision of, of a famine that was going to come, and it was going to last for a really long time. And so Joseph actually is able to make provisions while there's still food so that when the famine hits, there will be enough for everyone. And when the famine does hit, Joseph's family actually sort of leaves he, the Hebron Valley where they're living and they travel to Egypt in hopes of finding food so that they can live. Uh, and the other thing that you need to know is that right before these verses, Jacob's, uh, or Joseph's father, Jacob, I'm gonna get those mixed up all day. Uh, Jacob has just passed away. And there's, there's this whole large ceremony uh, in mourning him and his loss. And this is where we pick up. In Egypt, in verse 18, it says, his brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. That's Joseph. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and for your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. That statement, sheds light on everything that happens over the course of Joseph's life. That statement colors the the chapter that we just read of what his brothers do to him. He says, you meant it for harm, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He's saying, when, when Joseph's own brothers, inflamed with murderous intent, strip him of his most prized possession, throw him in a pit, toy with the idea of actually killing him and instead opting for selling him like a piece of property. Joseph says, God intended that for good. God was going to bring something good out of it. And he did. Because of all of that, Joseph was in that position to, to literally save thousands, maybe tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. I'm not exactly sure. Tons of lives. After all that's happened to Joseph, all the suffering he's endured because of his brother's jealousy and resentment, he still has the perspective to see that God was at work in it all. And that's a lesson, I think, that all of us should be able to receive. If it had not been for those evil things that his brothers had done, he would not have been in the place with the opportunity and the authority and the influence to rescue so many of those people. God saved so many people through, through the wicked intentions of his brothers. What we, what we see in that, what I see in that for all of us, is that God is powerful enough to bring about good from the evil intentions that have come towards us, that have come at us. God is powerful enough to bring about good from the evil intentions that have come at us. When other people have evil intentions and and it results in suffering, God is powerful enough to bring good out of that. I know that there are people here in this room that have seen and experienced horrible things because of the evil intentions of other people. Some of you know what it's like to be disowned, hated, conspired against. I know some of you know even what it's like to be in fear for your life. Do you believe that God is powerful enough to bring good out of those situations? Whatever suffering you have in your life, do you believe that God is powerful enough to bring something good out of those things? I know for myself, there was a time in my life when I struggled severely with depression and suicidal thoughts. It came about as a result of several factors, but underneath all of that, I I see an enemy of my soul who had intentions for evil. And I think no matter what suffering you've undergone, underneath it, there is an enemy of your soul that intends to harm you. I believed all kinds of lies about myself. I believed that the world would be better off without me. But what the enemy meant for evil in my life, God meant for good. He intervened in my story when I had no hope and began in me a long process of healing and recovery. And now I live with a hope that, that is unshakable. Like nothing, <laughs> I have faith that God will bring me through because I was in the lowest place and he brought me through. And I, you know, you could ask Rosemary, she'll come and we'll have things go on in our lives and she'll just be worried and i the, th- the phrase that I always say to her is, it's going to be okay. It's going to be all right. Whatever happens, it's going to be okay. I know that because I've experienced that. And it, not just that, that's not the only good thing that God brought out of that situation, but he has actually Similarly to Joseph, literally been able to use my story to save lives of other people. There was a season of life where I was in ministry with, with youth, with middle schoolers and high schoolers, and, and we were in community together, and God was able to use my story, what the enemy meant for evil in my life to destroy me. God meant for good so that other people who did not know that there was hope or a future for them could understand and know that God was not finished with them yet. And I definitely did not have as, no, as much confidence or uh, grace as Joseph in what he was doing. But God had good intentions for the suffering that I went through. And he has good intentions for the suffering that you go through. So I, I wonder, what is it that's happened to you? What evil intentions have come against you? What suffering have you sustained in your life? No matter what it is, God has a plan to use that for good. God's intention is to bring about good through the suffering, not in spite of the suffering, through the suffering. He's preparing you to be able to bless somebody else who, who feels like nobody else understands them, but you do. Those experiences will allow you to compassionately empathize with other people who are suffering in similar ways. Now, it's natural for us to identify with Joseph in this story. I think suffering has a way of sticking in our minds. It has a way of of always coming back to us. And so it's natural for us to recognize sort of the the connections between Joseph and us and the ways that he suffered and the way that we suffered. But if we were to stop there, we would be leaving something very important on the table. We would be leaving a very important lesson that I don't want us to miss from this story, which is that the truth is that evil is not just something that happens to us. Evil is something that is in us. Evil intentions are not just out there They're in here. We are not always Joseph. Sometimes we're Joseph, but sometimes, and more often than we'd like to admit, we're the brothers. We are motivated by jealousy. We are motivated by insecurity. We are motivated by just rage, by a desire for approval from our father. We're we're motivated by all of these things that lead us to do stuff that we're not proud of. So what happens then? What happens when we come face to face with our own evil, with our own wickedness inside of us? For Joseph's brothers, we saw it in chapter 50. They fall down like abject humility, faces to the floor like, we are your slaves, Joseph. Because Jacob has just passed away. Jacob was their, the brother's sort of last line of defense. Now nothing is stopping Joseph from taking revenge on his brothers, from, from getting justice for what they did to him. And they're just falling down. They're si- they even like make up a story. If you were to go and read a few verses forward, they're like, send word and they say, hey, just so you know, dad told, t- told us that you should forgive us. And then they just fall down before him. They say, we are your slaves. Like, please just, you know, forgive. They beg for forgiveness that was completely undeserved. That's what happens when we come face-to-face with our own wickedness, when there's no longer any way for us to avoid it or, or not have to you know, deal with it, we're left with nothing that to just fall before, fall before the one that we've sinned against and ask for forgiveness that we don't deserve. And the truth is that all of us are in that place of desperate need for undeserved forgiveness, both from the people that we've wronged and from, ultimately, from God. And I think it's right for us to come face to face with that this morning. And I think there's no better place for us to do that than around the communion table together. And so I hope that you got one of these little elements when you came in. And if not, uh, just put your hand up and we'll have somebody come by uh, and get you one in just a moment. The communion meal, the... the, the, (laughs) It's a little bit of a joke to call this a meal, but the the communion elements, it's an opportunity for us to remember the ultimate, the ultimate, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. These represent the ultimate, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God's good intentions and his covenant promises are fulfilled. Their, their climax is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Does anybody know the last words that Jesus says on the cross? I just heard it. Somebody whispered it. It is finished. The last thing that Jesus says on the cross, he said in Greek, it's tetelestai, which is a, it's a term that most often is used uh, as sort of a financial term, like a banker's term. Sometimes you can think about it as saying paid in full. And what he's saying there is he's not just saying, I've paid the full price for all of our sins. What he's also saying, what else is finished, is way back in Genesis 12, when God spoke to a random guy and said, I am going to bless all peoples of the earth through you. Generation after generation comes, and here's Jesus on the cross, and with his last breath, a way was opened up for all peoples of the earth to experience life and freedom eternal in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus' death was the fulfillment of God's covenant promise to Abraham. When Jesus dies, now all peoples of the earth are blessed. God's Spirit can go to anyone who would fall down, recognizing their own wickedness, and ask for forgiveness that they don't deserve. That's what we remember when we come to this communion meal together. We participate in this sacrament, among other reasons, as a reminder of our own need for forgiveness. We recall to mind that it was our sin, the evil in our hearts that put Jesus on the cross. And it's not until we come face to face with the evil inside of us that we are able to fully grasp the beauty and the wonder of what was accomplished there. God is not just powerful enough to bring about good from the evil intentions of other people against us. He is also loving enough to forgive and redeem the evil intentions that come from us. God has good in store for us. He has good planned for each of us. And so I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up, and we're going to take these communion elements together. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul teaches a little bit about communion. He says this in the, uh, I'm sorry, this is 11 starting in verse 23. It says, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way after supper he took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me for wherever you drink this or whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the lord's death until he comes proclaiming jesus's death is to declare what we've talked about this morning is to declare both that God is powerful enough to bring about good out of any wickedness in the world. And we declare that he is loving enough to forgive and redeem us no matter what. No matter what has happened to you, God still has, has a plan for your life. Nothing Nothing could happen to you that would disqualify you from a relationship with him, from participation in the kingdom that he's building in the work that he has, would disqualify you from the plan for your life. And nothing that you have done could possibly separate you from his love, Could, could invalidate the relationship that you have. And so as we take the bread, you can open up that side there. As we take the bread, I'm gonna invite you to consider the things that have happened to you, the suffering in your own life. And just, maybe just as you take it, just ask God in your heart and your mind, what good is God bringing out of that situation? What good is God bringing out of that? Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for being God Almighty. God, I thank you that that nothing is beyond your power and and nothing has has ever occurred that is outside of of your ability to, to accomplish your will. And Jesus, this morning, we thank you for your sacrifice, for bringing about the best good out of the worst evil. And Lord, as we take of this bread, I, I ask that you would reveal to us the ways in which you are bringing good out of the suffering that we have experienced in our lives. Thank you for your sacrifice, Lord. May we never forget it. Let's take of the bread together. You can turn that cup over and as we take of the, the cup I invite you to consider your own evil to come face to face with that w- wickedness inside of you and fall down before God in humility these altars are open if you want to come up and just pray confess before God maybe even say exactly what the brother said We are your servants. We are your slaves. And in that place where, where we might expect to see a God who is angry with us, a God who condemns us, there we find a loving father. father who embraces us who, who makes a way for us to to come back there's nothing that any of us have done that would put us too far gone so let's pray Jesus I thank you for your blood the topic of, of many of our worship songs even today Lord the the blood that you shed was payment for our sin. And it was through your death that we are forgiven, but it's through your life, through your resurrection, that we have relationship, that we are received as sons and daughters of the Most High. And God, we don't deserve that. And Lord, as we take this cup just holding before you the things that make us unworthy of it. Lord, would you allow us to experience your love, tangibly experience your love that you have removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west, that when you look at us now, you see the purity of Christ. Thank you, Jesus, for that amazing gift. Pray this in your name. Let's take the cup together. God knows everything you have done. He knows everything that you have thought and every intention of your heart. And the, the one who has the right to condemn you is the very one who embraces you and invites you into a transforming relationship with him. If you want that, or you want more of that, as we close in a time of worship, I'm gonna invite you to come to the front. If you would like to receive God's love, if you have something in your life that you feel like is unforgivable, it's not. Jesus will forgive you. And as a matter of fact, he already has forgiven. And you have the opportunity to experience that love and forgiveness this morning. I'm going to invite you to come forward. You can just kneel before these altars, just pray, and uh, we will close in a time of worship. Let's sing together.